0: Good morning. Hey, welcome to Tom Bell Bible Church. If you are here as a guest or the first time, would you do us all a big favor in your program? There's a tear-off strip on the right hand side. Fill that out. Put that in the offering plate as it comes by a little later in the service. That's really all we want from you. We're not looking for money. We're just glad you're here. Uh, Jeremy and Neil, thank you very much for kicking us off. It's always great to have guys kind of step in and, uh, and I, was, I was encouraged and lifted up by that. And I'm sure the Lord was pleased too. So, good morning. Uh, yeah, Friday, 11 11 11, was uh, Veterans Day. And uh, some of us paused to celebrate that and to honor those who have served in our military for the years. Can I just ask that if you have served in the military, guys or gals, in any way, would you just stand up? We'd just like to give you a round of applause for your excellent service. Our country is a free country where we can come together and worship like this in the open, in public, partly as a result of the service of those guys and gals around the world who kept this world in good order. So I want to thank them for that. As we open up uh, the word this morning, we're going to Colossians chapter 2, and as you uh, go there in your Bibles, let me just open us uh, here in a word of prayer. Lord God, we love you. And we thank you for the opportunity we have to come this morning and study your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would help me to deliver it in a way that would be pleasing to you. That I would teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. That our hearts, mind first, would be open to what you have to speak to us. That we would walk away from here changed. That your word, which is like a two-edged sword cutting back and forth, slicing us to ribbons, Lord God, would come. This morning, that your Holy Spirit would speak through the words that come out of my mouth, directly into our hearts, and that we would be changed. We thank you and we praise you, and we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. As you're turning to chapter 2 of the book of Colossians, I would just like to uh, kick it off by telling you that I have an announcement to make. I am decided based on an email that I received from God last night to start my own religion. That's a new religion. I have a name for it. The website is uh, still in development. The church will be called The Church of the Shadow of Jesus. And you all are invited to join. Let me just tell you, there's a very simple church. It doesn't have a lot of rules. The doctrinal statement is quite short. It just has three major points. I'll outline them to you, and you can decide whether you want to join or not. Okay? Point number one, I'm in charge, all of my preferences, everything I like, everything I dislike, all of my preferences are rules, okay, they're rules, whatever I like, whatever I don't like, that's the law, and you will follow them. I have a lot of preferences, and so it's necessary for you to understand that I will judge how holy or unholy you are by how well you follow my preferences. Now, just so you're clear, uh, I will generally update my preferences as we go, because my preferences will change over time, but you shouldn't be bothered by that. You just need to keep track of them, and I'll post them on the website, and everything will be fine. But just to give you an idea, I'm still generating the list. It's up to about 300 now, but I'm just going to pick out a couple for your for your edification. I prefer, for example, I prefer that you would read your Bibles every day, Okay? You can't argue with that. That's a good biblical thing. But what I want you to do is I want you to read all 66 books of the Bible every day. Okay? All 66, every day. That's a preference I have, and I'm going to ask you to consider that to be a law and a rule. I prefer praise songs, by the way, like we had this morning. Hymns are out. Okay? As of now, hymns are out. Uh, and, in fact, you should not even have the desire for us to sing hymns. Okay? That's my preference, is that you don't even want to sing hymns. Instruments on stage are good. Uh, Jim Bays are out. Sorry, Neil. Where's Neil. Drums are okay, but no jim bays. Guitars are good. Uh, harmonicas, sorry, Jack, are out. Pipe organs are out. Uh, those are my preferences, so that's what we'll do. And, um, oh, one other thing which uh, was making its way fast to the top of the list. I want everybody to speak with a Minnesota accent. <laughs> Try this. You betcha. After all, Minnesota is God's country. Rule number two is we will communicate with God my way. Okay, I have a special way that I have developed that we can communicate with God. You all know uh, Stephen Jobs died uh, October 6th. For about a five year period, I was in heavy negotiations with Stephen Jobs and decided that we struck this very lucrative business deal under which, after he died, he would go to heaven he would set up a special web link for me to directly communicate with God on my iPod, on my Apple computer on my iPhone, iTunes, iPad, and Skype. So he's completed that, and of course I had my first web link with God last night, and everything was good. So as of today, all communication will be done through me. I have an exclusive arrangement with the web link, and the link is up and running, but you have to communicate it all through me. I didn't think you'd mind that at all. So all through me. Prayer uh, is no longer necessary. It's obsolete, and therefore it will be banned in our new church. And all communication with God, it goes directly through me. And then rule number three, <clears throat> which I'm sure you all will enjoy, the first two are a little burdensome, I must confess, but the third one is easy, we will practice what I call anti-asceticism. I like that word, anti-asceticism. You all don't know what it means, and I think it sounds very spiritual. So you will adopt it as the governing body or governing rule for how we operate. Anti-asceticism is a, is a means by which we become spiritually perfect, by being anti-aesthetic, and now what that means is there's some special rules that go along with that. First thing is you must get no less than 12 hours of sleep at, per night, no less than 12. You will eat not f- three, not four, not five, but six meals a day. In between the meals, you are to eat high-calorie desserts and chocolate only. Six hours of television is mandatory on the couch in the, in a supine, a laying down position. Okay, and. Because we think we need to, we're going to measure your weight weekly. So when you come in in the morning, there'll be a scale here, and we'll measure that. We'll measure your progress uh, against that. And these chairs are going to all have to go there. We're going to have to move all these out and bring in Lazy Boy recliners on Sunday morning. So my question is, how many of you are in? Come on, the Lazy Boy recliners are going to get you. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. And as we read this section, I want to go back to the 30,000-foot level for just a minute. And a little later, you'll understand the sarcasm about a new church. Why did Paul write the letter to the, to the Colossians? Well, here's what happened. A guy named Epaphras, who was at the church in Colossae, Paul did not find the church there. In fact, he never went there. He didn't meet most of the people who, who lived there. But Epaphras did. And Epaphras went to Rome, where Paul was in prison. Epaphras said he had a problem. He said he had a problem because he got heresy. The heresy going on in the church in Colossae. The Colossians are, are, are here in this, and I need your help to refute it. And so Paul wrote this letter for a number of reasons, but primarily to refute the heresy that was going on in, in the Colossian church. So what exactly was the heresy? Well, Paul in the letter doesn't specifically mention it. He doesn't say it by name. He doesn't say, this is the heresy. But you can figure it out pretty readily. And in this section of scripture we're about to cover today, he, he talks about it directly. He talks about three symptoms of the heresy that are going to come out very clearly in this section of Scripture. By way of introduction, I just want to tell you what they are so you'll look for them. The three isms, okay? Three isms. One is legalism, that's the first one. The second one is mysticism, and the third one is asceticism, not anti-asceticism. It's the anti-anti-asceticism, which is asceticism, okay? Legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. And so we're going to run through those today, and you'll see this as we read in, in our Bibles this morning, uh, those coming through quite clearly. So if you would, would you turn to chapter 2 of the Col- book of Colossians, and we'll read uh, 16 through 23, or you can follow it on the screen. Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So you see these three isms coming through in this section of Scripture. Legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Let's cover them one at a time. The first one is legalism. So what is legalism? Legalism is a strict and literal excessive conformity to laws or standards or preferences. Okay, It's a strict legal adherence and conformity to rules or standards or preferences. Now, not all laws are bad. And so when we follow laws, it doesn't mean that we're legalistic in the sense we're describing today. It simply means we're being obedient. It doesn't make you a legalist, but when you have an exaggerated conformity or adherence to these laws, and often a desire to force those rules or standards or preferences on other people, that's when it becomes legalism. And that's what was going on here in the church. Now, legalism is a little bit sneaky, partly because it's a, it's a sense of the exaggerated nature about which we, we uh, adhere to laws and rules and standards. Now, let me just give you an example. And most of the examples of legalism in the church start out with really good stuff. And then they slide downhill into legalism by what we do. An example, I have the habit of reading my Bible through all the way, 66 books, every year, not every day. Okay? Now, that's a good thing. That's a habit I got into many years ago, and I continue to do that. Now, if I were to sit down with you and say, Do you do that? Do you read your Bible? You ought to think about doing this. It would be really good for me. I think it's a good idea. That's not legalism. All I'm doing is encouraging you to do something that's good. However, I slide into legalism when I do this. If I talk to you and find out that you don't read your Bible through once a year, if I judge you, if I criticize you, if I try to make you do it or force you to do it, by me taking my preference, my rule... It's not a law. There's nothing in the Bible that says you must read through your Bible once a year. You won't find it in your Bibles. It's not God's law. It's my preference. But when I try to force that on you, that's where it becomes legalism. But it's a slippery slope. Now, at the root of legalism is pride. And what would I be doing if I were criticizing you for not reading your Bible every year? I'd be puffing myself up. Because now I'm comparing myself to you and I'm considering myself to be more spiritual than you are because I read my Bible all the way through once a year and you don't. And I've taken one little rule, one little preference, and I've used that as the standard to judge you and that's wrong. It's wrong. And that's where legalism comes in. It's ugly and it's sinful. Colossians 2.16 Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So what was going on in the Colossian church was certain teachers were insisting that the, that the Colossian believers would obey Jewish laws. Laws about what to eat or not to eat, what to drink or not to drink, and about certain religious festivals. And it's funny because most of the Colossians were not Jews in the first place. They were Greeks. So we ask, well, why would they even be interested in following a bunch of Jewish laws? And the answer is right in the same sentence. He says, let no one pass judgment on you. What was happening was the teachers were, were doing just what I described. They were passing judgment on these, these Colossian believers because they weren't following certain rules about what to eat and what not to eat, about which religious festivals to attend and which not. And so that was wrong. Paul declared that this is wrong in Romans chapter fourteen. Verses two and three, he says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let no one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Food and drink, it's it's just not that important. Figure it out yourself. Do what you want, but don't force, don't judge other people by that. In regards to religious festivals, a few verses later in the same chapter, Paul says, in verse 5, he says, One person esteems one day is better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. One guy has a preference for certain religious festivals, another guy says, hey, all days are fine. And then Paul says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And keep it there. Keep it in your own mind. Don't shove it on other people. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Well, the one who abstains, who doesn't do it, abstains in honor of the Lord, too, and gives thanks to God. So what does Paul say about legalism? What does he say about eating and drinking at religious festivals? Well, he says in verse 17 of Colossians 2, he says, these these things, what you eat, what you drink, religious festivals... These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so all these things are a shadow. What we eat, what we drink, what we think, what we say, what we study, what we do, what we teach, what we sing. It's all a shadow, not the real thing. I travel on airplanes a lot, and every now and then I'll be sitting by the window and I'll look out on a sunny day and I'll see the shadow of the airplane racing across the earth. And sometimes, if I watch for a few minutes, uh, it will hit a car head-on. And I'll be thinking to myself, watch out! But of course, the the shadow has no substance. It goes right over the top of the car. There's no damage whatsoever. You've had this experience, I think. I had this when I was a kid. I had this really great idea. talked my brother into it. Every now and then, a plane would pass overhead, and you see the shadow, and the shadow would fall on you, right? If you were quick. I always thought, you know, let's grab onto the tail of that shadow and go. What a good idea. If the plane's going to Miami. If you just grab the tail of that shadow. You could just drag yourself all the way across the earth and go to Miami with it. But there's nothing there. And what's what Paul is saying here about things that we eat and with things we argue about, things we try to impress upon other people, like a shadow. They have no substance. He says the substance belongs to Christ. And so anytime that we have preferences and we expect other people to follow them, or if we judge other people or criticize them by what we think and what we prefer, that's legalism. So, do we have legalism in here today? Well, of course not. The problem with legalism is that it's always the other guy who's legalistic. So, all of you guys are legalistic and I'm not. But here are the kind of things we say. And if any of these stick to you a little bit, well, think about it. The English Standard Version is a better version than the New International Version. And the King James Version is the best of all. So, read this one. That's legalism. I don't drink alcohol, and all Christians who drink are poor witnesses, so you shouldn't drink. Jesus drank wine. He even turned water into wine. Wine's okay. You can drink. I don't hang around with non-Christians. It's the best way to be in the world but not of the world. I hang around with non-Christians because Jesus did. I never watch R-rated movies. I never watch PG-rated movies. I never watch TV. I only watch educational TV. I hardly ever go to the mall. I don't even know where the mall is. I'm a vegetarian because Adam and Eve were. I eat meat because the Levites did and God likes burnt offerings. I don't work on Sunday. I don't work on Saturday, the real Sabbath. I pray in the morning because Jesus did. I pray in the evening because Jesus did. Paul says this kind of stuff has got no substance. It's like a shadow. It's useless. Why do we do it? It's worthless junk. Paul says, don't let anyone judge you by this and don't do it to other people either. He doesn't talk about it here because he spends most of the book of Romans and most of the book of Galatians to address it. But legalism, you get on that path, you're going to slide to a place where you don't ever want to be. Legalism, when it slides downhill and gets all the way to the bottom, it says, I not only want you to follow these rules, and I'm not only going to judge you according to the preferences and rules and standards that I have, but you can't be saved unless you do them. And when you cross that line, there's no going back. Remember, it's not about what you do and what you don't do. It's not about rules and regulations and preferences. Salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone and it's got nothing to do with what we do or don't. But don't ride that legalism slide. It's where you'll end up. Okay, that's legalism. Next he talks about mysticism. Now, why did I call this mysticism? Well, mysticism is the definition of what he's talking about here. Mysticism is a belief that you can have direct access or a direct relationship or special knowledge or special truth about God in a subjective method. Some kind of a subjective experience. And that subjective experience could be a lot of different things. And we call it subjective because it's hard to grab. It's hard to prove. It's hard to deny. It's hard to really figure out what it is. It's one of those subjective experiences. Could be a feeling, could be a dream, could be a vision, as we'll see here in a second. That's mysticism. It's the belief that you can have some special access to God by some subjective experience. So we look at verse 18 in Colossians 2. It says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. We'll come back to that in a minute. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Well, part of the heresy in the Colossian church was these two things. One, worship of angels. And two, visions. Now, we don't know exactly how this all worked, but it's mysticism. Anytime that you believe that you can have a special access to God, in this case by visions or by worship of angels, that's mysticism. Now, angels are real, but God does not want us to worship them. And so the guys that were doing this were clearly out of bounds. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, John, who wrote the book, had an encounter with an angel. And it says in verse 10, he says, Then I, John that is, fell down at his, that is the angel's feet, to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. Even angels know that they shouldn't be worshipped. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Angels are beings... That serve. They are not God and they should not be worshipped. And so Paul is telling you, that's out. It's wrong. How about visions? Well, there's visions all over over your Bibles. In the Old Testament, prophets would often get visions from God. But if you look at each of those instances, it's always on the receiving end. These guys didn't dial up God and say, hey, I want to have a vision. Can we meet at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon? That isn't how it worked. They were the recipients of the vision. They were surprised themselves in most cases. And so visions are something that we receive. We don't don't go out and try to get them from God. The trouble with a vision is that I can't prove that you didn't have a vision, and you can't prove to me that you did have a vision. And so that puts it in this category called a subjective experience that nobody can prove. And it's quite dangerous. And in the Colossian church, uh, these guys who were having these visions were getting puffed up by it. They're getting big heads, literally. Because they would walk around and say, Oh, say, I had a vision from God, and so therefore I'm better than you, I'm more spiritual than you, and everything's good. You should follow me. That's wrong. As an aside, I should say that if you have a vision, or if someone tells you that they have a vision, you should be very, very careful. Because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light it's quite likely that that vision wasn't from God after all. The fact of the matter is, is the way to God is through Jesus. Not through angels or visions. Jesus said it himself in John 14, 6. He said, I am the what? The way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus. Any attempt to go to God without Jesus is wrong it's direct contradiction to scripture First Timothy two five says that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man and it's Jesus the man Jesus Christ the Bible is very clear on this there's no back door there's no side door there's no secret passage to God and anybody that tells you that there is is wrong it's all about Jesus There's only one way to have a relationship with God. The gospel is very clear. Our sins have separated us from God. We have no relationship with God because we have sinned. Full stop. The good news is that Jesus died to cover up all your sins. And therefore, when those sins are covered up, God sees you as holy. And therefore, you can have a relationship directly with him. But without Jesus, you can't. The only way to have a relationship with God is to trust in Jesus as your personal Savior. That is the gospel message. Any other way to get there, angels, visions, you name it, it's wrong. So what does Paul warn about mysticism? Well, in verse 18 he says, let no one disqualify you. Let no one disqualify you. The NIV says, let no one disqualify you for the prize. The King James Version says, let no one beguile you of your reward or cheat you out of your reward. The word disqualify is a sports term, like track and field. When you run in a track and field event, you have to compete according to the rules. When I ran track in high school, there you, you were a few rules you had to follow. You have to stay in your lane. If you, if you run out of your lane and bump into another runner, you're going to get disqualified. If you start before the gun, you're going to get disqualified. Disqualified. If you get tired halfway around the track and cut across the football field to the finish line, you're gonna get disqualified. Okay? That's what this word means that we translate disqualify. And it isn't that you, you suddenly lose your citizenship. You don't get thrown out of the United States for being disqualified in a sports event. And you don't get thrown off the, the, the track team. But you do get disqualified from receiving the prize at the end of the race. And this is what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about being disqualified in the sense that you lose your salvation. That's not what he's talking about here at all. He's talking about losing rewards. Now, as Christians, we know from the Bible that there are rewards that we will get in heaven. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. When we get to heaven, we stand at the gates of heaven. We say, why should I let you in? We don't say, because I did a lot of good works. We do say, I trusted in Jesus, and that gets you in. But we also get some rewards based on what we've done here on earth. And we don't have a very clear picture of what all those rewards are and how those are doled out. But for doing good things on this earth, we do get some rewards in heaven. Maybe some crowns, maybe some other responsibilities. not totally clear. What Paul's saying here is those who participate in mysticism run the risk of losing those crowns, those rewards. and So that's a bad idea. So is mysticism a problem today? Well, not so much in the church. But there are churches who want to go to God through different ways. And if Jesus is left out of the equation, it's wrong. Our society is filled with mysticism. People have no idea how to get to God. And they'll use whatever means they can. Palm readers, spiritists, mediums. Tarot card readers. People get up. If any major newspaper in the United States has a daily horoscope, there are people in our society who literally get up and anxious. They pull up that paper. They go to the website and they see what's my horoscope for today, in hopes that they can get some spiritual insight into the world. And it's messy. And the biggest error is that sometimes people seek God through means other than Jesus, other than your Bibles, other than the Holy Spirit. And when they do that, it's just wrong. And Paul says so. So those are the first two elements, legalism and, and mysticism. The third element is something I call asceticism. Paul mentions it twice in this section of Scripture, once in verse 18, he just mentions it, and he comes back to it and, and covers it in more detail in verses 20 to 23. So we'll read that again. He says, beginning in verse 20, If with Christ... You died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still in the world, do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what is asceticism? It's a long word, asceticism. It's uh, practicing self-denial as a means of personal and spiritual discipline. Self-denial. So if you're an ascetic, you will deny the comforts of this life, the comforts of the material world, exactly opposite of what I described earlier. And we put the Lazy Boy lounges in here and we watch TV all day and we sit around all day and do nothing. This is the exact opposite. This is being very severe in your body and, and, and ignoring or denying the comforts of life. And the whole purpose is that you might achieve some higher spiritual goals. Now, asceticism is different from discipline, so we shouldn't get those two mixed up. Discipline is a good thing. Discipline is something, according to Titus 1.8, that elders should possess. Discipline is, is the ability to control yourself in a manner such that you can be obedient, such that you can be effective. We all know what discipline is. But asceticism goes a lot further than that. Paul describes it this way. He calls it a philosophy that says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And then he refers to something he calls the severity of the body. The NIV calls it harsh treatment of the body. King James version refers to it as severe treatment or neglect of the body. And so that asceticism says, "Well, I can be spiritual as long as I as I beat my body up." And so, in Paul's day, it would look like typically a man would live in a very poor. House or probably out in the open without a house at all, and he would walk everywhere. He would never use a horse or a, a donkey to ride. He would walk because that's more difficult, punishes his body more. They would often fast for days and weeks at a time in order to punish their bodies. They would often walk around without their hair kempt. They would be unclean, they would be dirty, never take a shower with the hopes of, of, of punishing their body in such a way. And some of them would even take whips and sort of beat themselves with them. Some weird idea that they become more spiritual that way, and more able to be obedient to the Word. And so that's a little weird. And so, is asceticism prevalent today? Well, other than those people who need to go to the gym every single day to exercise, which falls in the category called discipline, I think, we don't see asceticism too much, do we? Why is that? Well, I think it's because we love comfort too much. I think it's because we live in a relaxation environment where enjoyment is good and we enjoy the things in life. And so asceticism for us isn't really much of a problem. When we see it, it's usually in some isolated case, uh, some weird church somewhere, usually in the Far East. So we don't see it very often. But the thinking around asceticism can be prevalent also. Paul tells us in verse 23 why it's wrong. He says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so Paul says they have this appearance of wisdom. It's not wisdom, it just looks like wisdom. And asceticism is two things. It's a physical thing where you beat up your body, and then it's a mental thing where the mental state says, this somehow makes me spiritual. And it's that second one that we have to be careful of. Because at the very center of asceticism, we find this thing called pride again. And in fact, in verse eighteen, if you look in the NIV, NIV doesn't refer to the word asceticism; it actually calls it false humility. And so does the King James version; it refers to it as voluntary humility, which I think is a clever term—voluntary humility. It's like it's an act. It's like a show. And what the Bible is saying is that Paul is saying is that it has this attitude. It says, "See how humble I am. I beat up my body. I fast all day. I'm, 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 I'm spiritual. Look how humble I am." And it's such a contradiction because it's not humility at all. It's pride. And Paul says it promotes self religion, a self made religion, something just made up. In fact, the King James version is fantastic. It calls it will worship. It's worship of the will. It's self-made. Something you just did on your own. You made it up. It doesn't glorify God. It glorifies man. And then finally, Paul says that asceticism has no value in helping us to avoid sin. Which is totally ironic. Because most of the people who get into asceticism do so with the thinking that if I beat my body up long enough, I'll be more spiritual. And therefore, I can avoid sin. And Paul says it's rubbish. rubbish. God never told you to go do that. God never said that's the way to avoid sin is to go beat up your body. Man made it up. And so Paul says it's going to fail. It's a self-made religion. It's going to fail. It's man's idea. So, there it is, the Colossian heresy. Legalism, mysticism, and asceticism, and they're all wrong, and why? Why are they all wrong? Well, Paul gives us some good reasons, but... There's an overriding principle that these violate. The overriding principle is because they take the focus off of Jesus and they place it squarely on the guy in the mirror. They take the focus off Jesus and they put it on me. You see, because this is what legalism says. Legalism at its heart says, Do what I do. Do what I do. Mysticism says, let's go to God my way. My way. Mysticism. And asceticism says, I'll beat myself up and become more spiritual. And when you say that, and you leave Jesus out of the picture, it's just wrong. And Paul makes it very clear in verse 19 of chapter 2. Colossians 2.19, he's saying, no, don't do that. He says, because when you do that, you're not holding fast to the head. From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Not holding fast to the head. And who's the head? It was Jesus. Jesus is the head. Jesus holds it all together. And when Jesus is not the centerpiece of all that we do, is where we go really wrong. So we have to keep the focus on Jesus. Legalism, mysticism, asceticism, they all take the focus off of Jesus and put it on us. And whenever you do that, whenever you seek to limit Jesus or to set him aside or to minimize him in any way, you're going against Jesus. All that Jesus is about. It's wrong. And that's why chapters 1 and 2, which we've covered in, in the weeks prior, that's why Paul spends so much time, chapters 1 and 2, before he even gets to the, to, the, to the heresy. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus and all of his attributes and how he's superior. He's preeminent. He's God incarnate. He's, he's all God and he's all man. That's why he spends all of chapter 1 and 2 talking about that, because he has to build up that argument. He has to remind his readers, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then he says, here's why the heresy is all wrong. Because you've taken the focus off of Jesus, and you put it on yourselves, and it's wrong. And in verse 19, he says that we will grow with the growth that is from God if we look and hold on to the head. Hold on to the head that is Jesus it's why at this church we emphasize the gospel so much. Because the gospel has to weave its way through everything we think and do. If you've got the gospel straight, you're not even going to be tempted by stuff like legalism. You're going to recognize it for what it is. A shadow, no substance. Jesus has got the substance. But if you haven't got that gospel in yet, every single day, that's the foundation upon which we, we live. Jesus must be our focus, not laws or rules or preferences. Jesus must be our connection to God not angels, not visions. Jesus is our means to grow, not beating ourselves up. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your son Jesus. We thank you that he is fully God, fully man, sitting today at the right hand of God the Father. Thank you that he is our mediator, Thank you, Lord God, that you loved us so much that you sent him, your only son, to die on the cross so that believing in him we might be saved. Lord God, he is the only way. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to you, Father, except through Jesus. Help us, Lord God, to use that as a foundation, all we think and do. We might not be confused in any way, ever, or to minimize Jesus ever, that he would be the center of all that we do. God, we love you and we thank you and we pray all these things in the powerful and precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.